0: Hi there, this is 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this summer we're celebrating pride. On this episode, I talk to Brian Selznick about his latest book, Big Tree. Brian Selznick is an American illustrator and author best known as the writer of The Invention of Hugo Cabaret, Wonderstruck, The Marvels, Kaleidoscope, and The Houdini Box. He won the 2008 Caldecott Medal for U.S. Picture Book Illustration, recognizing the invention of U.S. Cabray. When he was first starting out in his career, he worked at the long-closed Eeyore's Books for Children on Broadway and 79th Street, just around the corner from the JCC. And now here's my conversation with Brian Salzman. We are here to talk about your new book, Big Tree. I loved it so much. I don't mind admitting this now because this is not true anymore but I had not read any of your books before. The Invention of Hugo Cabret was on my radar and so many people had said I should read it because I would love it. And of course, the moment I found out that we were going to be chatting, I bought a copy and loved that too. Your style is so interesting and I look forward to talking to you about that in a minute. Can you tell us about Big Tree? Thanks and it's it's really nice to be
1: chatting with you. Yeah, Big Tree, it's hard to describe in a lot of ways. It's almost 600 pages long. It's half pictures and it's about two very tiny sycamore seeds who are both trying to save the world while finding a safe place to grow for themselves. And it takes place at the end of the Cretaceous era, right before the asteroid hits the planet, destroying most life on Earth. And it's a time period I picked so that I would have a good metaphor for the impending climate crisis that we ourselves are facing now. Whatever do you mean? <laughs> Apparently, yeah, Google it. There's some, uh, <laughs> some <laughs> real, something going on in the world. Real issues with the climate. The story follows these two seeds, Merwin and Louise, who are siblings who grew in this little seed pod with hundreds of other siblings, and then they're released into the world where they then have to go and find th- their safe place. And Momma Tree had told them they need to find a place with plenty of water and good light and good soil. And Merwin's very concerned with fo- following the rules and doing what's right. He's a bit rigid, and his sister Louise is much more dreamy and has been having visions and hearing voices that seem to be telling her she and her brother may have bigger destinies than just growing. And so she's trying to convince her brother that they might have to, in fact, help to save the world, even though they're so. Small and feel so insignificant, which also seemed like a pretty good parallel for how most of us feel when we're thinking about issues on a global scale. We often find ourselves thinking, what in the world could I do? I'm just one person. And so it often leaves us feeling helpless. So I thought if I give that feeling to two seeds who are actually tiny and helpless and they figure out something to do, maybe that would, maybe that would be helpful
0: to me when I'm feeling particularly hopeless oh, the magnitude of the book is so inherent and even part of it is because there are visuals and so we don't have to imagine we all know how small seeds are but we don't even have to imagine is it like a chunky seed is it a big seed no no it is a tiny seed just like you would plant in your home for something and so part of your style is artwork is drawings You said yourself about the invention of Hugo Cabret, that it is not exactly a novel, it is not quite a picture book, it's not really a graphic novel or a book book or a movie, but a combination of all of these things. How did that become your sort of quintessential style? It was an accident that developed out
1: of the narrative of Hugo and the fact that I had been making books for 15 years Mm. and figuring out how to... Illustrate stories. Mo- you know, most of the books I made before Hugo were books that I illustrated for other writers. And so I would be offered at some amazing, interesting story, and then I would figure out ways to illustrate it. And so I've been thinking a lot about what happens when you turn the page in a picture book, how novels illust- use illustrations. My friend and mentor, the great Maurice Sendak, who made Where the Wild Things Are, used to talk about how, in a picture book, The words and the pictures have to have a kind of alchemical reaction so that together they make a third thing that doesn't and can't exist alone. So the story can't make sense without the pictures. The pictures can't make sense without the words. And together by the interaction of the words and the pictures and the way they're interacting is, of course, in your mind, right? You're the one who is doing some kind of imaginative work with the the images and the text that is offered to you. And very often I find myself thinking about what is the purpose that pictures serve in a story. Why is a book illustrated? And why are people singing in a musical? Sure. There's a That's lot a of different reasons. Right. Yeah. And it could just be because they're in a musical, right? Like that, that is a valid reason. But then with even within that reason, with even within that world, There's the the idea that characters sing when they can no longer speak, right? Like when they have emotions that are too big, or there's something that is powerful that they feel like there's no other way to express this moment. Or they could be in something that is more like an operetta where everything is essentially sung closer to Sweeney Todd, where you're in this kind of heightened operatic world, but the, but you can take songs out of context from musicals. And we always do, and we, and they can be big hits and they can be wonderful but they're built to be in certain places in a narrative at a certain point in a show. It was decades before I knew that Send in the Clowns was from a show. Uh And I heard it growing up on the radio all the time. And it was such a beautiful, strange, plaintive song, unlike most things on the radio. And then eventually I discovered Little Night Music by (laughs) Stephen Sondheim, and then heard how that song works in the show and who is singing it. And of course, it takes on a kind of richness that it can only have in the context for which it's written. So when I was making The Invention of Hugo Cabret, I started with a story about a kid who finds a broken automaton and tries to fix it. And I spent, I don't know, nine months or a year trying to figure out what the narrative was. And I was imagining that the book was going to be a novella and it was going to have maybe one drawing a chapter. It was going to be 98 pages. And it was only after working on the book for almost a year that I found myself feeling that one drawing a chapter wasn't right. There was a the feeling that I was having, it's hard to describe. It was like a vague sense that it should be something else, (laughs) I started thinking more about movies because George Melies was a silent filmmaker and film was going to be very important to the story. And I began thinking more about picture books and how movies are visual mediums that tell their story mostly through white. And picture books are visual mediums in many ways. And I was thinking about the wild rumpus and where the wild things are. There's no white space. There's no words. You just move through these four spreads, which is eight pages of, or it's, yeah, I think it's four spreads or three or four spreads, and it's just you moving the pages from Mm -hmm. one to the next. I just found myself wondering if there was a way to have a wild rumpus or wild rumpuses in my story. Because if one wild rumpus is amazing in a 32-page picture book, what would happen if there were like 60 wild rumpuses that were 20 pages long in a 600-page book. right? And so I went back and I took out all of the text that I thought I could replace with pictures. So I took out descriptions, I took out action, and I replaced them with these... Sometimes there's just one drawing of like a close-up of a character's face. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times we turn through 15, 20 spreads where we follow someone running through the train station or moving through the city or trying to fix the automaton. And then once the picture sequence ends, we go to where the narrative picks up. So the words never say what the pictures are doing and the pictures never say what the words are doing. And it grew organically from there.
0: Is that always your process? Do you always write the whole thing and then pull out chunks? Or has have you changed how you do the process now that you know that's something that you enjoy doing?
1: I had never made anything like this before, so it was something I discovered with Hugo. The, I had something
0: like Big Tree, did you write the whole book first and then...
1: Once I discovered it with Hugo, there was a version of it that would happen with each of the subsequent books that I tell in a similar style, Wonderstruck, The Marvels, and Big Tree, except the difference is I had learned how to do something with Hugo, and hmm. so the trick with Wonderstruck, which was the book I did after Hugo, was to take what I learned and not repeat myself, but do something different with it. So, Wonderstruck, instead of telling one story with words and pictures, and my goal for Hugo was that at the end of the book, you wouldn't actually remember what you saw and what you read. I wanted the whole story to blend like together one in your mind. Thing, sure. And so, for Wonderstruck, my, what began the process was the idea that I would tell a story with the pictures and a completely different story in a different time period with the words, let them weave together until they they joined up at the end. And so that's... And then I eventually, after doing some research and thinking about it, realized that telling the story of deaf children would be perfect because deaf culture is a visual culture. And so telling the story of a deaf child through images could have an interesting parallel for the deaf experience itself. Mm. And then with the marvels, I had learned so much from doing Wonderstruck but wanted to do something different with it again and tell one story up front that covers five generations of a single family, all in pictures. And then the second half takes place a hundred years later and it's all in words. And the first half eventually becomes like a dream or a memory for the characters in the second half. And then I did a few other books. And so when it came time to make the book of What of Big Tree, it it was allowing myself to use a combination of everything that I had learned with all those other books.
0: And not only a combination of what you've done with all the other books, but it started as an idea for a film that was pitched by Steven Spielberg, which is, but again, it like had its own sort of roundabout way of getting into our hands. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it was a very backwards story in terms of how it developed because a couple of years before the pandemic, Steven Spielberg reached out to me with an idea that he had for a movie that he wanted me to write, and he would produce it along with Chris Melodandry. And the idea was to tell a story about nature from nature's point of view. He had never seen a movie about plants, starring plants. And and I I think he was thinking about the earth and the danger that the earth is in and that this would be a, a novel way to approach a story about the planet. And I spent a couple of years working with him and Chris Melodandry on a screenplay. But when the pandemic hit, One of the casualties of the pandemic was this movie. But by that point, I had a almost finished screenplay that I had really fallen in love with. And I had developed this story about these two little sycamore seeds who go off into the world to try to find the safe place to grow. And Louise was hearing voices. So like what we were talking about earlier was present in the screenplay, except I wasn't going to do any art. It was going to all be professional animators who had spent several months trying to figure out what the characters would look like and where the faces would go on the seeds, Because we couldn't imagine making a movie about characters with no faces. And it never quite worked. So we didn't have any final character designs. And so when the movie wasn't going to happen, I reached out to Spielberg and Melodandry and asked if I could have permission to turn the story from the screenplay into a book. And they were very excited about that idea. And it meant that I would get to do all the artwork. And so I realized that the reason the faces were never working was simply because seeds don't have faces. And so for this story, where I was trying in the narrative to have everything based in science, I needed to carry that rule over to the pictures as well. So in, in the book of Big Tree, the seeds are just sycamore seeds. And... They sycamore seeds do have little bits of fluff that allow them to catch the air and move through the wind when they're released from the tree. And that fluff can help it attach to animal fur, to the bottoms of your shoes, so that they can spread out into the world. And so I make that fluff a little bit like arms and legs so that they have it's gently anthropomorphized, but they don't have faces. And so When you're looking at the pictures, the way that I had to express emotion was through gesture. And I was thinking a lot about dance. I once had this amazing opportunity to write a new story for a version of the Nutcracker at the Joffrey Ballet, choreographed by Christopher Wheeldon, And working with him to figure out how to tell a story without any words, but only through movement, was really educational and inspiring. And so when I was thinking of Merwin and Louise and these seeds and the trees and the kind of ways that I had to show their desire, their fear, their loneliness, their happiness, I was very much thinking about dance and movement and gesture. And then the words could tell us what the characters were thinking and saying, even though they don't have mouths and they don't have minds in real life. But there were just a few moments when I found myself writing lines like tears rolled down her cheeks or a shiver went down his spine. And I realized my versions of these characters don't have eyes and they don't have cheeks and they Mm. don't have backs. And so so I, and this is not something you would ever really notice, but I had to rewrite the lines so that it was a shiver of fear moved through Merwin or Louise felt sad. So read about what they're thinking and feeling and saying and then see the drawings where they're moving from the sky and you're the one doing the work the reader is the one doing the work to put the feelings and the words onto these oh, the visuals. lost
0: seeds the book is it's really profound and i think it, it it speaks to i think both young people and adults and in a way that pixar may as well for a full family audience yeah. you talked about wanting it to be as scientifically accurate as possible, which I think is also super cool. While there is an element of anthropomorphized characters, you've talked about the fact that trees would be able to communicate with other plants. The trees do communicate with other plants in the world in their own way. And so you, that's how you were able to navigate the book for yourself. Was there anything in particular that you learned in this process about I'm sure you learned a lot, but is there something that surprised you about the world around us?
1: Mm. I think one of the fun things about working on this story was diving into the science of nature and reading books like The Hidden Life of Trees, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have either heard of or read themselves, that discusses the a lot of these issues around the ways that trees communicate and the way forests are actually a community. It's not a collection of individual trees. It's a community. And I learned a lot about the mycorrhizal system, which is the underground fungal network that connects the roots of all of the trees to each other. And I learned that I believe 80% of all of the energy that trees take in goes to keep the mycorrhizal system alive because it's the mycorrhizal system that connects all the trees and allows the trees to know what's happening all across the forest to the other trees, to the atmosphere, with insects, so that they can survive. And so the system, which has been dubbed jokingly the Wood Wide Web, because it has a kind of not—it's a sort of a natural version of the internet in certain ways, or at least it's a metaphor that we can understand—was really fascinating to me. And I created these characters called the Ambassadors, who are little mushrooms who pop up to tell the trees what's going on around the forest. And and it, but again, like that's based on the the science. Doing research, I discovered something I had never heard of called foraminifera which are very Hello. tiny, almost microscopic little creatures that live in the water. And they've always been there. There's billions and billions of them. And when they, they're neither plants nor animals. They have something like a shell. And the biggest ones are about the size of a grain of sand. The smallest are almost microscopic. And when they die, they fossilize. They can fossilize. And when scientists find fossilized foraminifera, they can measure the carbon in the shells that is an indication of the carbon levels in the the water, because they live in water at the time, but that carbon level is related to the carbon level of the atmosphere. And it's because of foraminifera that we know what climate change is. And so it's the carbon readings that we that scientists have done from the Wow, that have let us know how the carbon levels have changed over history. And I created characters called scientists who are these little tiny creatures who basically do research about the world around them, inscribe it in their bodies so that few scientists or other people in the future will know what the world was like. But Again, I wanted to find ways to personify the science so that we, if we were interested at the end of Big Tree, there's a big section with all of the true science behind the narrative. And so that we could then discover that we have actually been learning about science with hopefully without feeling like we've been learning about science.
0: No, it definitely doesn't feel like it is not a textbook, but I think we can be inspired by Big Tree. Absolutely. So I want to completely change the subject, although not really because it's still you, and you are the subject. So we're not going (laughs) to change you. You talk. You've mentioned. You mentioned him earlier, but you've noted before that Maurice Sendak not only was a friend, but also was an influence on some of your work. Also, that Remy Charlip was an influence on some of your work, and I find it very interesting that not only were they both prolific children's authors, backgrounds working in theater as designers, as writers, also both gay and Jewish. Yep. Were you drawn to them instinctively? There seems to be something very cellular going. Yeah, it was definitely instinct instinct,
1: and nothing that was planned, but fascinating to discover. Right. And so I did not have very many picture books when I was a kid, but for some reason, I had almost all of Remy Charlip's books, so I don't know who gave them to me. I don't know why I had them. He had a book about sign language called Hand Talk Alphabet, which is how I learned sign language as a kid. Started to learn
0: sign language as a kid. He had Fortunately, which was one of my favorite books. Fortunately, I bought for my niece like when she was born. Again, I had no idea who he was. I only learned yesterday that he was one of the founders of the Paper Bag Players on the Lower yep. East Side. Which, like, I've been—they've been on my radar for many years. But fortunately, I saw him in the bookstore and it was like one of the funniest books I've ever read. And of course, a gay Jewish New Yorker wrote this book. And I'm like, <laughs>
1: <obsessed. laughs> yeah, I have read that book to kids probably thousands of times. <laughs> and it still makes me laugh. Yeah. But I always use it as an example of what can happen when you turn the page and along with Where the Wild Things Are by Sendak. And so Remy's books as a kid were very important to me because they were so experimental and so different and used pictures in such interesting ways and used the page turns in such interesting ways, none of which I was like conscious of. I just loved the books. And then it wasn't until I got a job at a children's bookstore after college that I really discovered Maurice Sendak's work because I did not have his books as a kid. So I knew about where- you? Yeah, I know. I (laughs) worked in New Jersey without Sendak. (laughs) And so I discovered Sendak as a young adult and just- fell in love. And, and I feel if you really want to learn about how to make a book, you what you really need is where the wild things are and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Like You really can learn about psychology and about structure and about poetry and about what images and words together can do just simply from deeply studying where the wild things are, which of course is totally wonderful even when you don't Deeply study it and just enjoy the story about Max and his evening with the wild things. And so I was just drawn to certain things, right? As a, I grew up in the seventies in New Jersey. So there were not a lot of, there were not any gay characters I was aware of in TV shows or movies really. Mm -hmm. Yet I found myself alone in my room listening to the soundtracks to Broadway show tunes, not knowing that was something that a lot of young, Queer people were doing. There was no internet, so I had no way of connecting with uh, anyone else. So it was me thinking I was the only person making these discoveries. Mm. I was obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. I loved Culture Club and the Village People, not knowing either of them were gay. And it was just, it is, it feels like something cellular. And then, yeah, and then when I got to Eeyore's and was just beginning to come out a little bit because I came out very late, like after college. And so I discovered Maurice as a picture book maker. And slowly over the next couple of decades, as I grew more obsessed with Maurice's work and then eventually met him after about 15 or 20 years of making books, I slowly began to learn about his own story because Maurice was also... Very, what's the right way to say it? Maurice didn't come out publicly for a long time and he had a partner of 40 years. Yeah. But he, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the towards the end of his life that he really started coming out publicly. He, I think he like really came out publicly for the first time on, I think, the Colbert show. And he was very close with Terry Gross of Fresh Air. Mm -hmm. And did, if the listeners have, if your listeners haven't heard his interviews with Terry Gross, or Colbert, I recommend they look them up because they are astonishing oh, hmm. and and deeply moving and beautiful. And uh, and so when I met Maurice, he I was I had just finished a picture book about Walt Whitman for children. And by coincidence, he was just reading Whitman for the first time. And he was very deeply well read and knew he was one of the smartest people I'd ever met. But he said he never read Whitman because he couldn't trust the idea that someone in the 19th century could be that comfortable with their sexuality when Maurice in the 20th and 21st centuries could wasn't comfortable with his sexuality. And as Maurice became more comfortable, he became more comfortable reading Whitman. And, and then I learned, I knew that Remy had been a teacher of my friend, Dan Herlin, who's a theater director and puppeteer. And and it was Dan who introduced me to Remy Charlip when I was just beginning to work on the invention of Hugo Cabret, and we hit it off right away. He asked me what I was working on. I told him I was making a book about a kid who meets a French silent film director named George Melies, and I realized that Remy looked exactly like George Melies, <laughs> and so I asked Remy to pose as Melies in Hugo. Oh, so no, no. all the drawings of Hugo in. Of Melies and Hugo are actually Remy Charlotte, my favorite childhood writer wow, and illustrator. How special!
0: And yeah, so it was a for them. It's so interesting. Maurice Sendak, Remy Charleb, and to go on Arnold Lobel, who did the Frog and Toad series, James Marshall, who did the Georgia Martha series, Tommy DePala, who did the Strick series. All of their books, a they're all gay authors. Their books are like gay canon. And when you really look back at these children's books, when you mentioned coming out late, did you find that your work changed before and after that as a writer? Because I it doesn't seem, I don't, from what I am aware of your canon, you don't have any gay, queer, LGBT characters. That's not really what you're writing. I do. What do I, I know? See, uh, I, like I said, I I've only read two of your books.
1: In, in, the, in my book, The Marvels, mm-hmm. there are many out gay characters. To read The Marvels, clearly. Uh, so yeah, so do read it. And it's also about the theater. It's about, a, it has a lot to do with the history of theater in Britain. But it's, it's very much rooted in the idea of how queer people make, we make our own families. Mm. And that's, mm. very, that's very central to the themes of Hugo Wonderstruck and the Marvels. And I remember very early in my career, I had made a couple of books and I'm friends with another theater director. And he asked me if I thought my work itself was queer. And at that point, I had only written one book, The Houdini Box, about a kid who loves magic. And I did not, at the time, have any out gay characters. And so I said no, and he laughed in my face. Ah, and he said, Brian, your first book, The Houdini Box, is about a kid who is obsessed with a man who could escape from anything, who lo- literally locks himself in closets and gets out. Right. Like, it, it's about someone who is constantly coming out. Right, and so I
0: was like, "Oh, I think I see what you mean." And well, it's actually so funny that you say this because I live on this podcast. I'm having my own realization. I don't have therapy this week. My therapist is out of town, so this is very okay, helpful. Glad I can help. <laughs> Guess what I did when I was a kid? Magic shows uh-huh. at birthday at birthday parties, yeah. and just like you were saying about when you were a kid, little did you know you loved musicals. You loved The Wizard of Oz. And all of a sudden, to reflect back on that, it was gay culture without you even realizing. Right. I think that's true for me in this moment, realizing, oh, magic, oh, it's the same way. So that's so yeah. funny that yeah. inherently your books were queer coded without you even realizing. because right,
1: I'm queer. Like, it's who I am. Right. And you do not have to, You. I'm, this is obvious to say, but I'm going to say it. Loving The Wizard of Oz and The Village People and Broadway shows and magic does not make you gay. Like, you can love all of those things. Many, many people who are not, queer love those things because those things are beautiful and fascinating and interesting and fun. But I think that the reason a lot of queer people have these things in common is there are elements of them that do unconsciously speak to the parts of us that might be afraid, that might be keeping secrets. That as a magician, the secret that no one else knows and everybody else wants to know that secret, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of how many queer kids feel where they're terrified someone's gonna find out their secret. So to have an outlet where you can be the one with the secret and the secret gives you power is really, could be very meaningful. And of course, when, hopefully, when you do eventually come out, you discover, or many of us discover, that coming out is the magic trick, is the power. And, and blowing can... my
0: mind, Brian Zeltnick. <laughs> blowing my mind over here. <laughs> I love that so much. And I think that's such a special thing for us as a community to remember that we are powerful magicians.
1: Yeah. And, I, and right now we're obviously in a moment in time when the people who are afraid of us are ascendant in a lot of ways and are using fear to spread worry about us to Communities around the country and around the world. But it's all, it's not real. Like that fear that is being created is the same fear that was created around the Jews in Germany. And it's about about keeping power and about finding ways to control large groups of people. And fear is a way to do it. The power that we have and the magic that we have, especially because for so many of us, we, especially uh, the older folks, grew up at a time when there there was also no public acceptance. So we know what it's like when America doesn't accept or when the world doesn't accept or love gay people. And of course, there are, what's complicated about today is that there are places where children can come out at four or five or six or seven or eight, whatever it is, and say who they are, be supported by their parents, be supported by the community. And in the next town over, there could be terrible book banning, and there could be all sorts of fear. In the next house over, it could be happening, right? So it's not two different places where this is happening. It's happening in the same place. And I've been on a big tour for Big Tree, traveling all over the country, and I feel like I am on the ground talking to people who are experiencing all of this side by side with everybody else. And so- wow. It's, uh, it's, it, and ultimately, it's, it really is important for us whenever it's possible and to make sure, make sure we feel safe. But it's really important to come out and to be vocal and to let people know that there's nothing to be afraid of.
0: Back to the point about, about Merwin and Louise, do you feel like, do you feel like you're doing your part, your little part by touring around the country? It's all like it's all like it's all I can do. right yeah. Like I write
1: stories and I draw pictures, right <laughs> like it, and I do most of it sitting by myself at my desk. Like, I guess it, I really
0: mean does it feel good? Do you feel like you're making an impact? Because you probably are without well, even realizing.
1: Thank you. And I guess what I mean is I'm doing the only thing I know how to do. And I'm lucky because I've been making books for a long enough amount of time that when I make a new one, I get to go on a big tour like this and travel around and talk to people and speak to people like you and, and share these stories with your listeners. And, and I know for myself, like mostly when I'm writing, I'm trying to make myself feel better in some way and help myself. So when I'm, and I'm learning new things, like we were talking about with the science. So I figure if I'm learning something making these books, then I can, when I share the stories, Maybe if, if someone else is interested or there's something that sparks an idea in someone else, that could be worthwhile and that could happen. That could be possible. Although the the real, my real purpose when I sit down to write a story is to make a, just make characters and a narrative that people care about. And it's not to teach anything, but I very much like sharing the things I'm thinking about during the process. And, and then if that ends up
0: being helpful to anybody, that, that would be thrilling. I love that. That's fantastic. Big Tree is wonderful. Everyone needs to read it if they haven't already. And I'm grateful that you were around and able to talk to me about it. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk. Thank you so much. I know you have to run. So thank you for this. Enjoy the rest of your tour. Enjoy the Midwest. Have some, I don't know, state or something. (laughs) (laughs) If you were in Chicago, I'd say have some pizza for me, but that's not where you are right now. Um, And when you're in San Diego, I hope to get to say hello. Yeah, be great to say hello in person. Terrific. All right. All right. Safe travels. Enjoy the rest of your tour. And right. have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Brian. Right. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Big Tree is on sale now wherever books are sold. Make sure to check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, share us with your friends, write us a review, and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Until next time.